Happy New Year, School Colors listeners. We hope that by now you've been digging on all eight episodes of School Colors, as well as the bonus feature, and even all the media appearances Max and I have made. But if you're a true ride-or-die School Colors fan, then you may just want to check out this conversation between me and Mark and Antonine Pierre from the Brooklyn Movement Center that was captured for a special episode of Brooklyn Deep's monthly Third Rail podcast back in November. Do you want the full origin story of how Max and I came to collaborate? Looking for some insight into our own interpersonal dynamics? Curious to know what our favorite School Colors moments are? If so, this interview will pretty much satisfy your inner School Colors geek. So enjoy, and make sure to subscribe to Third Rail wherever you get your podcasts. Peace, everyone. Welcome to Brooklyn Deep's Third Rail, where we tackle political and social change issues that impact the lives of Central Brooklynites. I'm Antonine Pierre, Deputy Director of Brooklyn Movement Center and your guest host today. And with us, as always, is our engineer extraordinaire, Gypsy, the creator, producer, and co-host of The Hangover Takeover. What up, Gypsy? What up? <laughs> now, if you've been listening to Third Rail from Jump, you might remember me as a co-host from the early days. And it's so good to be back with y'all just for this one episode while Mark is in the guest seat. So on today's show, we're going to be going inside the highly acclaimed podcast, School Colors. And then, of course, as always, we'll end the show with Tell Them Why You Mad. So full disclosure, I'm completely biased. I love this podcast, and I'm so looking forward to geeking out with this behind-the-scenes interview with the host. It's, School Colors is so fascinating, and I've been listening for the last two months, hopefully along with some of y'all. So School Colors is a little bit different from Third Rail. For starters, it's a limited series of just eight episodes, and it's a documentary. It's kind of like serial, except it's about race, class, and power in American cities and schools through a central Brooklyn perspective. <laughs> yeah, just like serial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one of School Colors co-producers and co-hosts is, of course, BMC's executive director, Mark Winston Griffith, who was just chiming in there. And the other co-producer and co-host, Max Friedman, is a longtime Brooklyn Deep contributor and Brooklyn Movement Center member. So, Mark, Max, welcome to Third Rail. What's up? Thank you. It's, Hello. Good. it's nice to be on this side of the mic. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all, we're acting as if we haven't been working in this room all day together. <laughs> I know. But we brought in the mics and now it's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's true. So, um, so educators, parents, BMC members, honestly, just regular folks who live in central Brooklyn keep hitting me up to talk about how well done this podcast is. I think it's really different for people to hear just really high quality journalism about events happening like right in your neighborhood. And I've been hearing a lot of that excitement. So for folks who haven't heard any of the episodes yet, Max, Mark, what is the story you're telling with School, school Colors? So like you said, School Colors is eight episodes and it's about the way that the this neighborhood as it's changed and evolved over the last... 100, 150 years has changed the schools here along with it and how the schools then have changed the neighborhood um, and how looking at all of that can help us understand the way that American cities, not just New York City, work and don't work, particularly for black folks. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add that, you know, uh, when Max and I first started thinking about this, what was sort of our trigger on some levels was what was happening in central Brooklyn right now. That is the background of gentrification and charter schools and a lot of sort of power struggles within the district. And the more we wanted to tell that story, the more we realized 
we had to go into our history. So half of the half of the podcast takes place pretty much in the present, and the other half we look at the the history of and look at basically how we got to this moment. And I should say this moment, uh, when you say this moment, I mean, the immediate kind of news hook for that is that um, Community School District 16, which takes up the eastern half of Bed-Stuy with a little slice of Crown Heights, is drastically under-enrolled. I mean, the schools are basically half empty. And 50 years ago, they were so overcrowded that students had to go, that students had to, go to school in shifts. So we started shifts. out shifts. Shifts. Like half day. Yep. Oh, that's corny. <laughs> <laughs> that's one word for it. Yeah, right. Um, so we started just we started off with being like, "What? What the hell is happening?" And um, it just opened a hundred different doors that we felt like we had to walk through. Right. So yeah. So the whole the whole series is, in some way, a, an attempt to answer the question, like, how did how did the schools get so under enrolled? And it we just it's a very complicated story, and we try to untangle all the threads from it. Yeah, I mean, so y'all mentioned that the first half of the story takes place in the past. So in trying to untangle all of these threads, how did you decide, like, what at what points in history should you tell this story from, right? Like, what's relevant about the history to encapsulate in four episodes? Well, I would say one thing, one incident in particular that takes up two whole episodes, episodes two and three of School Colors, is the Ocean Hill-Brownsville Ocean Brownsville decentralization, well, Ocean Brownsville um, com- community control fight. And that was one thing that Max and I both were very aware of when we went into this and knew that we were going to have to tell that story. Um, you can't talk about whether it's unions and the rise of charter schools and this conversation around community control and decentralization. You can't tell any of that story without looking at Ocean Hill Brownsville first. So, so I know that you spend two whole episodes talking about Ocean Hill Brownsville for folks who are listening who may not have ever heard of it or don't have an understanding. Could you give us one sentence? One sentence. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, so, uh, there was an experiment in community control of schools in Ocean Hill Brownsville. Um, so there was a community controlled school governing board. The teachers union believed that that governing board had abused their power and went on strike for seven weeks in the fall of 1968. It's still the longest teacher strike in American history. Um, they say they were going on strike just for the rights of, for, for workers rights. And a lot of people believe that they were striking against, um, students and families of color. Uh, and the way that that shook out profoundly shaped the school, the school, the school system and a city. Great. That was so, more than one sentence. I apologize. No, no, it's totally fine. So so that was a real central part of the story. What else is a, a real important part of the history of telling the story of District 16? Well, I, I do want to say that part of the reason that that's such an important part of the story is because I think you can't totally understand the tension today, particularly around gentrification, um, actually around charter schools and gentrification without understanding the the profound the long struggle for self-determination in this community, particularly as it's been acted out through the schools. And that starts with Ocean Hill Brownsville. Although actually it doesn't yeah, start with Ocean right. Hill we Brownsville. Go, we go back before. Right. Then. It starts actually about a hundred years earlier, um, which is something that we discovered doing our research, which is that, um, well, I didn't discover Weeksville, but if you've been listening <laughs> to this podcast for a while, you probably have heard about Weeksville before, which is the, um, an independent, basically autonomous, self-sufficient black community that existed um, on the other side of Atlantic Avenue um, in the starting in, the, I think, around in the 1830s. Um, and so in episode one, we talk about the school that was there, Colored School Number 2, um, and uh, what it meant to have a self-sufficient black school here and what happened at that school when European immigrants started to move in 
to central Brooklyn in the 1870s. Okay, and, don't and give be, it away. People have to listen right, to find right, out. Right, and to be <laughs> clear, we could have started before then, I'm sure, sure. right? But you got to... You got to set down a marker somewhere. So right. we started with 150 years ago. Yeah, with, I mean, we could have talked, the... talked about the draft riots. I exactly. Mean, yeah. Right. So we started with Weeksville, which a lot of people who live in Central Brooklyn might be aware of, because there's a a whole um, heritage center dedicated to the preservation of the memory of Weeksville. But there is definitely not a heritage center dedicated to the preservation of community control in Ocean Hill, Brownsville. This is true, mm-hmm. right? And I think actually. Um, a lot of people who live in that area, in particular Ocean Hill and Brownsville, maybe don't know about it. We talk to people who live there, have lived there their whole lives, and don't know about it. And I think there are actually reasons why that story isn't, doesn't get told. Um, and that's part of the reason why we felt we needed to tell it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up right next to Brownsville, hung out in Brownsville a lot. Had I basically understood Ocean Hill, Brownsville as some black folks didn't want Jewish teachers teaching their kids, which is... I think y'all do a very good job of deconstructing the what's wrong with that narrative that often gets told about Ocean Hill Brownsville. So when you um, so when you all told the story of Ocean Hill Brownsville, you then moved into the East, right? So and and some other pieces. So tell me a little bit more about where you went historically there. Yeah, I mean we we start like we said 150 years ago, and then we sort of jump to Ocean Hill Brownsville. And then, you know, which happened in the late 60s. And so, and even actually before Ocean Hill Brownsville, we talk about attempts, you know, busing attempts in, in central Brooklyn, kind of what led to the experiment in Ocean Hill Brownsville. And then after Ocean Hill Brownsville, like you said, we talk about um, the community of the East, which was a sort of alternative black nationalist cultural movement that not only began here in central Brooklyn, but had its roots in Ocean Hill, Brownsville, and a struggle for self-determination. So we talk about that and the schools that they opened and how they were sort of working in parallel to what was happening in central, in, in, well, throughout New York City, which was an attempt to take this experiment um, of community control, water it down, and then apply what we call decentralization to... New York City, so such that there was some semblance of uh, autonomy, well, I want to say autonomy, but some kind of a semblance of local control in school boards across the country, and, oh, sorry, across the city. And so from there, we, you know, we, we trace everything from there, um, from, from the 70s until the present day. And what's it been like just piecing the story together? What was it like? Um... It's been exhilarating and exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so do you mean like personally or do you mean, you know, as far as the, the craft is concerned of putting, putting together this podcast? Well, if, it feels important to share with folks that y'all have been working on this for two and a half years, at yep. least formally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think yeah. as an idea, it's been four years. So this, this has been a huge chunk of, of you all's life, right? Right. And... When, when, you know, a few things come across when you listen to the podcast, it feels very professional. It feels very well done. It feels Thanks. like very high quality mm-hmm. journalism. I already started by saying I'm super biased, so I can gush as much as I want. <laughs> uh, and, you know, one thing that feels really impressive, even when you listen to the trailer, is 
there's just how many voices you hear, yeah. right? Like it, it feels like you interviewed a ton of people. So more what than, was more it than like? More than 60 people. Yeah. yeah. So what is, yeah. so, so you did 60 interviews. What was it like pouring through all those hours of tape and, and how'd you even decide what to leave on the cutting room floor? Mm. Well, the, some of the stuff that we left on the cutting room floor were interviews that we did near the beginning when we didn't know what they didn't know what we were doing. We right. asked the wrong questions and the sound quality was bad. So yeah. that was easy. <laughs> uh, but, um, other, you know, if, Having never really done anything like this before, I mean, I have another podcast called Unsettled where I've cut my teeth a little bit on the craft of this, but definitely there were, there have been people along the way who we spoke to who, and some of this is them and some of this is me, they didn't come through as characters. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, people told me this, but I've only, it's only really sunk in through doing this, doing the work, is that, you know, they, people can have really extremely, um, articulate opinions about things and kind of express to you. Yeah. Opinions and, and they can have a lot to say without coming through as characters. And actually we've been incredibly lucky because we knew how many stories there were in this community to be told, but we didn't know that the people that we were going to talk to were would, would be such great characters. And they have been for the most part. I mean, we've met, yeah, just incredible characters, people who really pop, I think in, in the podcast. Yeah, and that was part of the decision-making process. Like you said, we had 60 folks, and yeah, there were some that sort of fell by the wayside because we didn't ask the right questions because the sound quality was bad. But there were a lot of others that we could have included on here. Yeah. And we had, to make a, you know, we had to make a conscious decision. It's like, do we just flood this with voices um, and have it just be a parade of voices? And that would have would have highlighted all these people, but it really would not have made for very good listening. Well, it's, although I got to say, I mean, uh, shout out to Elise Blennerhassett, who's been our, uh, who's been helping us edit and sound design and mix this thing. When we first brought to her, particularly it was the Ocean Hill Brownsville piece, when we first started working with her on this last year, I think there were 22 different voices in that episode, um, in the first draft of it. And she thought we were insane. <laughs> um, because that's just not really how it's, you know, particularly with audio, when you can't put a face to a name, it's hard to. It's that's hard to do. It's not yeah, that's not yeah. really there's not a lot of stuff like this in audio where you have that many different voices. Um, and, and we paired it back a little bit. But ultimately, I think most of those 22 voices are still in there um, because I, I, I do think actually the, the number of voices is part of the method of this mm -hmm. um, is that there are particularly with Ocean Hill Brownsville, but also with how things are how things work today. There are so many different sides to both like diff people who who are trying to work the system from different positions, but also like it, it's, it's, there's no one way to see any of the issues that we're trying to talk about. Yeah. And, and like we said, along the way we had to make choices and there were some people who we felt, you know, really strongly about, but ended up, you know, on the, on the cutting room floor. And at the end of the day, we had to choose voices of people who we thought, you know, the listeners were going to resonate with uh, who were, who were, whose voices were going to resonate with our listeners and like Max said, would, would pop and would help tell the story in, in some ways representative and, and succinct terms. And so rather than try to just, you know, again, include every voice, we were, we were somewhat strategic in trying to choose the voices that we thought told the story in the most comprehensive way possible. And, and I think all the way through, we've been trying to balance this, the, the, I think both of us, 
Mark and I have the impulse towards like wanting to do something really comprehensive. I mean, we really kind of love to nerd out and get into the weeds of the yeah, stuff. Yeah. And I, and I think that comes through on the show um, and, and have it be really emotional. Yeah. Um, to do both of those things at the same time is, has been really hard. Um, and uh, I hope people feel like we've succeeded. Yeah, and, and to, that, to that point, I think two of the most important characters in there are Max and me. Yeah. Um, and, or Max and I, I should say. And we made a conscious decision for this to be a little bit different than your sort of, you just uh, dry kind of uh, journalistic approach. We, wanted, we really wanted to put ourselves in there because we all have relationships with a lot of these people and with these issues. So we are journalists, but we also have a stake in these issues. Well, I think the outcome is that it really feels like the two of you are guiding us through this community, right? Mm. Like, I think having all of those voices, having all of those different perspectives really, really creates a fullness of community, right? Like, I feel these characters, right? Like, when when Annette Robinson <laughs> says <laughs> that someone bit her at a school board meeting like that's visceral i'm there oh my know? god it's everything i could do and she, and she had to taking... get a tetanus shot afterwards yeah right and, and remind folks just who annette robinson right I just named about to annette say robinson. i mean annette robinson yeah. was first the city well she's been a lot of things she's been a school board member um when you had the old uh board of education she was a city council person she was a state assembly person and she's just a sort of a, a venerable figure on the Central Brooklyn scene, very well-known, very well-respected. On tape, Hi- talking about somebody better. Right, highly dignified, <laughs> right. And, yeah, she goes in, and it, yeah, it's fun to listen to. Yeah, and, that, I mean, that's juicy, right? Like, And you've gotten really good tape from a lot of folks who are well-respected, right? I mean, you had interviews with... Adelaide Sanford, yeah, who, who is a local legend, but I think is not necessarily all that well known outside this community. Right. And and uh, particularly after episode one came out, so many people exactly. called me and were like, "Oh my God, where did you, Adelaide Sanford? Where did you find?" She's woman? definitely She's one amazing. of the stars. Philadelphia, yeah. right? Like you, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah right. I drove to Philadelphia to talk to her. Went to her apartment, spent a, like two or three hours with her. Yeah. Ninety-three years old. Yeah. That is dedication, right? Mm-hmm. Like you interviewed Nicole Hannah Jones, mm-hmm. yeah. who's a genius, mm-hmm. <laughs> literally. <laughs> Literally certified MacArthur genius. Right, right, MacArthur genius, exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah. So I do, And her husband, Faraji. Right. Yeah, yeah. so the, the interviews are really, they feel like a strong driving force here. And then, as we said, you all are shepherding us through this community, through these interviews. So, you know, I, you know if anyone who's listening has seen any of the promotional materials for School Colors, there's the logo, which is really awesome. Mm-hmm. And then there are these black and white pictures of this black guy and this white guy. <laughs> and, and y'all look like a little bit of an odd couple, right? Like Max, you're like a thirty-something white guy who's been in Bed Stuy for less than a decade. Mark, you've been here, you've been in in Crown Heights your whole life. Mm-hmm. You're not in your thirties, but <laughs> that is so nice of you. I do what I'm I north can. of. I'm right. I'm I'm north, north of the thirties. Oh, it's so lovely. North <laughs> of the thirties. So so yeah. So so on the surface, y'all look like a bit of an odd couple. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about sort of what y'all have in common and what drew you all to partner here. Mm. Uh, it's a great question. I mean, the things we have in common, I think, are not obvious, right? Like you said, on the surface, um, we seem very different, have different kinds of life experiences. But I think, honestly, like half or maybe more than half of the reason that we've stuck through this, stuck with this for so long, um, like you said, two and a half years through various phases of funding and no funding, 
um, is just because I think we like hanging out. Mm-hmm. I don't want to speak for you, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we geek out a lot about, about a lot of the same things related to the podcast and not related to the podcast. Right, right. Yeah, no, we have a shared love in movies and storytelling and in, in plays and drama. Um, you know, we geek out, like, like Max said, about a lot of the same things. But I think we also, in our hearts, are like, you know, desire to be storytellers. And I think we both have similar sensibilities in terms of, you know, history and storytelling and a love for this community. And it's though it was those shared interests and, and values that I think was the glue. And like, you know, like Max said, we like hanging out. And, you know, I, he's become part of my family. I mean, you know, uh, when I went on vacation this summer... The show had to go on, and so Max came to Jamaica with me. <laughs> um, Brought my laptop. <laughs> exactly. I, you know, last night he was sitting at my kitchen table eating with me or my younger son and his friend. So you know, it, we've just become a part of each other's family. And there's, I think, there's so much more that overlaps than that doesn't. Yeah, I mean, there is a direct connection that we didn't discover until. Uh, Direct connection, literally between our families, that we didn't discover until we were m- more than a year into production. Yeah, we shouldn't. We shouldn't. Yeah, no, 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 I'm not going to give that away. <laughs> Listen, to episode I'm, three, I'm standing, one of our I'm better spoilers. Here, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm sitting here giving Max like, don't talk about it. Looks. <laughs> I, I mean, I think we both also we we really believe that the universal is to be found in the hyper local. Mm-hmm. Say more about that. Well, you know. It, when we met, Max was a, a graduate student. I was here at BMC, and he came to BMC and and got me and BMC to uh, work with him on um, his master's thesis. And I think it was there that we sort of t- started to discover how much how how interesting Central Brooklyn was, and how interesting Brooklyn was, and how how interesting like this fight for self determination and. This moment we're in, in terms of gentrification, that's all hyperlocal, and very few newspapers or publications are really tackling things in that fashion. And we just saw such an opening for this rich storytelling that we jumped in with both feet, and at some moments have been a little overwhelmed by it, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, to me, to us, these it's a hype, it's hyperlocal, but there's an entire universe that you can discover there. And I and I think that every city has. Uh, I mean, yep. not every city has has Ocean Hill Brownsville in terms of the 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 scope and the impact of that event. But every city has a Bed Stuy, every city has and then has a Annette Robinson or a few of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, like the story, the the way that we're telling the story, I think, is a way that stories could be told about communities all over the country. And I and I hope and I believe that the stories that we're telling about Bed Stuy and Central Brooklyn will resonate with communities all over the country. Yeah, and I'd say this one last thing. I mean, what I think really draws us together is our love for complexity, mm. right? It's like, if this had been like a simple thing of right and wrong or, you know, this white versus black, we wouldn't have been interested. But yeah. there's so much contradiction and complexity and layers to this whole thing. We just, and, you know, be quite honest with you, we have to stop ourselves because there's only so much we can burden this podcast <laughs> with. Uh, but you will find that that is uh, the driving force in all of this, our our need to just to find the complexity and, and deconstruct it. I'm going to do a really sort of, well, I'm just going to go for it. In Fiddler on the Roof, uh, 
<laughs> there is, which I, I've been thinking about a lot as we've been making this podcast, because there's this recurring thing where Tevye, the main character, um, uh, Fiddler on Roof is a musical from the 60s, if you don't know. Um, he gives these monologues to the audience where he says, on the other hand, this. On the other hand, that. On the other hand, that other thing. <laughs> On the other hand, that and that that's that this that's us all the time making this thing. Yeah, um, yep. we have to, and like you said, we have to stop ourselves because we could other hand to other hand to other hand forever. Exactly. Yeah, it's such a to describe your working relationship around your love of complexity. I think is just such a beautiful foil to the story that you're telling. Mm, yeah, mm. and um, you know, on the other hand, <laughs> if you. Um, what are what are the stories and I'm going to ask you all to answer these separately. Okay. What what story would you have you not gotten to tell enough of that you would love to tell more of mm. in a different way? I know you might be over podcast right now, but just in, what's the story? You mean you beyond uh, beyond the whole school colors universe like some yeah, other Yeah, I mean or you've something uncovered that, something that's on the cutting room floor of the school colors. Yeah, universe. I mean you've uncovered so many stories and there's so many tangents that I feel like you could go off on and mm. just explore mm-hmm. and do an entire creative project on. Mm. So oh. if, you know, tomorrow MacArthur says you're a genius mm-hmm. and you you want to go explore a creative project that comes out of school colors what what story would you want to tell oh I know what I would want well and tell us <laughs> and this speaks to my own sort of personal stake in this I've been in this neighborhood you know like you said it's not just I've been here I've worked in this neighborhood for a really long time worked for elected officials and a few years ago I ended up running for office and found myself on the opposite side of the political establishment, a political establishment that I've been, on some level, when I'm in my early years, idolized for a really long time. And that to me, like the, the political class in central Brooklyn and the middle class and how they've gone from sort of revolutionaries to part of the, to, uh, you know, holders of the status quo, I think is really fascinating and says a lot about where cities are today as as far as where they started with activism and how a lot of that energy has calcified and, you know, people just power got good to them and the the oppressed became the oppressors on some level. So I would love to tell the story of central Brooklyn and its political class because again I've 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 seen it up close and personal. Like I said, my other podcast is called Unsettled, and it's about Israel, Palestine, and the Jewish diaspora. Um, and I, there's a there's like a little wormhole between the two podcasts <laughs> that uh, you wouldn't see unless you knew where to look for it. And it's in episode three. So the as you said, the version of Ocean Hill Brownsville, Anthony, that you grew up with was black uh, community activists wanted to fire all these uh, Jewish teachers, which is not exactly really what happened. But the fact is, is that the Teachers Union, which was primarily Jewish, um, went on strike against this experiment in community control. Um, and the, one of the questions that I, I think is impossible to answer in just one way is why did the Teachers Union react so strongly to what they were trying to do in Ocean Hill, Brownsville? And one of the answers that's out there, and I think to give credit where credit is due, I think the person that I talked about this with was a historian named Dan Perlstein, that his... One of his ideas about it is that probably what happened in 1968 would not have happened exactly the same way or with quite the same ferocity if not for the, that the previous year, 1967, was the Six-Day War. 
in which the young state of Israel was attacked by neighboring countries and miraculously, people like to say, um, fought those countries back very quickly and, and, and not only survived, but took over Jerusalem and the West Bank and created a lot of problems that we still live with to this day. But um, I, 1967 is really pivotal to American Jewish identity, to um, American Jewish, uh, the American Jewish relationship to whiteness, um, the, to the development of American Jewish masculinity, which certainly is very like a formative thing for me. Um, and that's something that I, that's, that's a, that's a huge topic that I would love to get into. Hmm. And we've actually done a whole, we've done an episode on sort of black Jewish relations for lack of a better term or dynamics. And that, that's, a, that's actually a topic that interests me, like the, the, the intersections between black identity and, and Jewish identity and who gets to claim, um, you know, being the oppressed. And I just, I find the whole thing fascinating myself. It's complicated. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm happy we're starting to get into identity because I named that, you know, you're very different peas in a pod, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mark, you, you're executive director of the Brooklyn Movement Center. I feel like I've heard of it. <laughs> and <laughs> it's... You know, we're a black self-determination organization, right? So what is it, what did it mean to you to partner with Max, who's not black, if you haven't, mm -hmm. if you just tuned in? Um, <laughs> yeah, like what did, what did it mean to partner on this very black story with someone who isn't black? Well, to be quite honest with you, this is not something we've ever really talked about before, but now that you asked the question, it was, you know, it, it was a lot, actually. I mean, you can't talk about you can't have a podcast that explores self-determination and not be conscious of the contradiction of having a white person and someone who's not from central Brooklyn, who's a part of, not just a part of the production, but like is half of the production. Right. And so I, you know, I was, there were always hesitancies and, you know, um, in the beginning I wanted to be the primary post of the podcast not not really because I wanted my voice, but because I just I felt strongly about there being a black voice that w that was centered on this. And the more we g went through the story, the more it became obvious that having Max be a part of it just added an element and dimension that we would have completely lost had it just been me. And we, you know, you can't have the sound of, there's no sound of one hand clapping, right? If you talk about race relations, uh, you know, you can, it's not just about black folks, but it's about what they are reacting to. And so having um, a person who is white and yet is um, not unconscious, you know what I'm saying? And who has a, a sensitivity to a lot of these issues who spent time in this neighborhood. I think Max was the perfect person. If we're going to have a white person on this podcast, <laughs> Max was the one to bring in. <laughs> and, you know, Max, you know, you've been, you've been a member of BMC for years. I've known you for years. You've been to walk through this very black neighborhood a lot together. So you're, you're very conscious, as Mark said, uh, of your whiteness, right? And have worked in, in schools in central Brooklyn. So what is it, been like for you to interact with your own whiteness and this very different platform? You know, in some ways, I think by the time we started working on the podcast, I was sort of used to it. Like I, I developed enough of a practice of thinking about my own whiteness that I think what's been interesting since we started putting it out 
is hearing people react to that. Like the reaction to myself identifying as a gentrifier, which is just like something that I'm used to doing because it's self-evident to me is like, oh, right. P- people don't do this. Um, and I, I don't mean to be like, whoa, I'm so woke. I've got it all figured out. That's not the, <laughs> that's not the point. Um, I just, yeah. I mean, I also like, you know, like I'm an only child and I like to like think and talk about myself like that. I did. So I just like, <laughs> like, like I, I you know, know to be a, all only children are like that as an only child, <laughs> but I hear you. Like, you know, I, the, I, the idea of sort of picking apart the, the, the pieces of what makes me, me and the difference between sort of how I feel and how I, how I, um, how I present, um, what I think and how I'm perceived. That's all just interesting to me. Yeah. And, and the fact that we talk about um, sort of Jewish identity and what was perceived as anti-Semitism during Oceano Brownsville, the fact that we talk about gentrification, it was really important that Max identified himself in certain ways. And I think that, you know, if I'm not mistaken, some people push back against that, right? It's like, oh, you know, how you, why are you coming on, this, on, the, sh- on the show and, and self-identifying as a gentrifier? And I thought I just thought it was a courageous move, and I think it was. I know you don't want to hear that, right? <laughs> but um, I just think we could not have proceeded in a certain way without that acknowledgement, right. and I think it just freed us in in many ways. Well, and I think part of what you're saying about Max being um, the ideal white person to to do this really is also about there's a humility there, right? Mm-hmm. In identifying as a gentrifier in a way that's almost, almost flippant, but very humble, right? That says, like, I'm identifying as a gentrifier, but it's not like I'm identifying as a male feminist, right? Like, it's not self-celebratory. It's mm. this is what it is. <laughs> right. right, right? Like, I yeah, think... It, that's that's I think how I feel about it. It is what it is. Max was, like, showing up, like, I did my work, y'all. I'm a gentrifier, you know? Like, nobody, nobody wants... In a black neighborhood, nobody cares about that shit. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, you're not it. the story, and you're clear on that, right? Right. But I do think you know it's I'm preaching to the choir. But like, it, one of the privileges of whiteness is that you don't have to go around like you know naming or having named for you the identifies the the, the identities that you hold. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like every mm-hmm. every almost everything in our culture is designed around the idea that the consumer of it will be somebody like me. Right. right. So to it's it's fairly important to name what that is and and. And understand it as something specific and distinct. That that's so true because I think that, you know, in some ways I wear my identity on my sleeve, and I think that it was just it was obvious if I'm going to be involved in this in uh, production, people ex- assumed that I was going to talk about myself in in the in, in the intersection with this story, but I think people may not have expected that from you, right? And for some for a white person to come on a show like this, and be very open and transparent about their identity is something that most people are just not used to. <laughs> well, and Mark, what is it like for you, I guess, doing doing the work that we do today as organizers in 2019 in Central Brooklyn to be, I mean, most of, most of the episodes on the present day haven't come out yet, which is why we're talking a lot about the history. But what was it like for you to sort of go on it feels as some. It feels almost like a glory tour of like black self determination in this mm, district, right? Right. Like I hear Ocean Hill Brownsville, and I'm like, this is what was going down in the civil rights movement <laughs> in Brooklyn. Like <laughs> this is where the civil rights movement was at. You know, I hear the episodes about 
um, about the East, right? Like you, there, right. there is this glory tour. And what was it like for you to, to go back through it's it? It's so important that you said that. It was so self-affirming. You know, I mean, I, as we tell these stories, I mean, I'm realizing this is stuff that's kind of like bursting out of me that I've been wanting to tell for such a long time. Um, it's such, it's so deeply sort of connected to just my my spirit, my spiritual being here in central Brooklyn. And so, yes, we're telling history, but for me, it's just, it's self-expression. And um, I have, I just, I, I feel stronger every time each episode comes out. And every time we tell this, this history and people respond to it in the way that they do, it just makes me feel prouder of this work than I have of most things I've done, particularly my activism work, you know, which is always, um, usually you're more strident, you're like, you're so righteous. This was more humbling and more sort of more acknowledging of our weaknesses as much as our strengths. Yeah, I don't mean to call it a glory tour. It's just, <laughs> I mean, they're not perfect. Ocean Hill Brownsville didn't save right, everything, right. obviously, or there wouldn't have been more episodes no, but it's, of the it's certainly an act of pride, though. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I'll just I'll leave it at that. Yeah, it feels like such a, a beautiful marriage of the, you know, we hear often people talking about art and resistance and like this beautiful storytelling. It brings so many dimensions to work that we often understand as writing talking points for press conferences or mm. sending out emails to get members out, right? Like you all are able to zoom out and really give us the texture of what organizing actually looks like over a span of time that feels so difficult to grasp when you're going to a community education council meeting. Right, right. No, I was just saying, you know, we call ourselves a citizen journalism outfit and I think what was really exciting for me, I, I don't want to say we gave voice to anyone. You know, people have their, had their voices already. But it was exciting to put a mic in front, of the, the, in front of people who are just not used to having mics in front of them and for people to hear them. Um, I wish we could have done more of it, to be quite honest with you. And if there's anything that comes out of this work, I just hope we get to do a lot more of that. Yeah, me too. And, well, let's talk about doing more now. I mean, we're not actually going <laughs> to we're not gonna get there quite. But, I mean, what you have done, we've already named, has been an incredibly professional piece of work, right? Mm -hmm. um, yes. And yes, thank you. And um, I know the budget has been low because I'm the voice on the podcast telling people to give money. So, so talk to us about what it's like doing this with like basically no bread, but it sounds like some NPR shit. Okay, we're gonna like. Do you really want us to? Yeah, and... tear the curtain behind the see what the, what the wizard is yeah, doing. I'm like, back turn there? off the mic. Turn off the mic. <laughs> I, I'm reluctant to say it, but look, let's just put it this way. I mean, we were half of this, half of what we recorded was done. You, did you hear the did you hear the cars in the background? Okay, that's what citizen we're dealing journalism. with. <laughs> citizen journalism. Citizen journalism. We spend half the time in like a professional studio here in Brooklyn, really lovely sound. And then we realized that the sound that we could get right here at the office in a five by five closet was actually very good. So yeah, we're literally in a closet. Yeah, we're we're literally recording in a closet, and 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 what the closet allows us to do is also more flexibility. I mean, you know, like we can keep going back in there uh, when we if we need to. Uh, when you we need to, to record stuff at the last minute, we don't need to book time, right? Um, but yeah, so we we're, we're recording in a closet. There, we we've had to pause 
on oh. several occasions with the recording because our landlord's children. I'm sorry, several, several occasions, <laughs> <laughs> several, like all the time. Yeah, okay. so we so we have to time our recordings. It has to be weekdays, like before two. When the kids are at when school. When the kids are at school. So Y'all, like today... this is me in the house recording this, okay? I don't think people understand. And also, I have to say, uh, I've been working in this building now for almost three years, or four, if you include, if you include the thesis research. I have never seen these children. <laughs> I At one point, I thought Shouts they were leprechauns. When we, first, when we first moved in here, I was like, they must be leprechauns. I've, like, I've they... met them. Not many no, times. No, they're great children. Them. I remember when one of them was born. Right, like, right. Yeah, all... But so today, we're, we're, we're recording episode six. Um, and we like our whole plan for the week to get it done by Friday was to record Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday morning. Well, Tuesday morning turns out today's election day, right? And so election day is a holiday. So the kids, the are, kids home. are at home. Yep. And they they were they were having a really fun. This is what we go through to bring y'all high quality. <laughs> For real. High quality journalism. Yeah. And that's what's so lovely about it because you know, like you said, the people look, and I'm going to be patting. Um, Max and Elise on the back more like just they just know what the hell they're doing technically and that's the beauty of this day and age you hit a truck in the background nah we can't do that for every cut that up <laughs> <laughs> okay no what you was I saying do that once <laughs> <laughs> yeah the honks are better than the truck no I mean I think yeah. this have this conversation is is, is no, good um enough. so what I was gonna say so yeah I mean I Yes, we are on this low budget and we're dealing with all these issues. But I think, you know, I think we have to give some real acknowledgement to Max and Elise who are working on the technical end of it and who made it sound so good. And that's the beauty of this day and time where you can do, um, you know, professional level uh, sound design and production in the privacy of your own home or on your own laptop. And, or closet. Or closet, right. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, that was a big part of it. Yep. I mean, we just, I was not going to spend two and a half years on this and not have it sound as good as it can possibly sound. Right. I mean, and I didn't know anything about how to make it sound good when we started this and I'm completely deaf on my, I'm completely deaf in my right ear. So that's a little, that's been fun. Yeah. Um, (laughs) which is a challenge, but made it work really great. And, and by the way, very little money. I get, I, I don't get any extra salary. I get, I get paid to be executive director. Max has gone months without getting paid. We've had to scrape for foundation dollars, and still we have more money to raise going forward. We're also and trying to do community-based outreach with this, so it's a lot. Yeah. So we want, I want to close out, and um, I know y'all are not supposed to have favorites, and would love for you all to share with folks if you have a favorite, um, if you have a favorite interview, right? Like it could be, mm. it could be because of a person or because of a thing they said. Everyone at this point knows that I love the Annette Robinson getting bit story. <laughs> um, but do you, do you have a, a favorite interview from this experience? Yeah, I do. And, and, and particularly because we were not able to use most of it. Um, so if I ever have the opportunity to, to somehow share out or make something, make something else out of our interview with Veronica G, um, she was a 12, 13 year old student at junior high school, 271 during Ocean Hill Brownsville. You heard her in episode three. She's the one, um, if you've been listening to the show, she lived right across the street from the school. And when things were really crazy, the police would come through her apartment to go through the window to go up on the roof. Um, to be up there with snipe, like to snipers up there, like 
you know, anyway. Um, so we heard, we heard from her about that and about, um, her experience in the classroom, what it was like for her to have black teachers, but she's a completely fascinating, really incredibly warm person with a really interesting life. I mean, her experience at that school was super interesting because the, you know, there was a lot of work going on around black pride and black history. And she's, uh, she's biracial and her, her mother is white and she like that was, that was, that made it actually challenging uh for her and that that's just like there was no we didn't have the space for that in the um in the show but one of my favorite one of my favorite things we've gotten to do actually is that um so a lot of the tape that's in episodes two and three the ocean Hill brownsville stuff comes from the archives of henry hampton who was the filmmaker behind eyes on the prize which is this landmark many 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 episode civil rights documentary on pbs in the late 80s and early 90s and mostly we used interviews from eyes on the prize but there was a bit of footage just like raw news footage that they shared with us from you know like police officers outside junior high school 271 and i was looking through it and it the the camera pans like from the school to across the street and the building across the street and you can see through the window like a white woman in the window and i was like okay in ocean hill <laughs> in 1968 there's probably not that many white women poking their head out the window and and and, and smiling i mean just like a beautiful <laughs> smile right um and i called veronica and i said come over here i want to show you this video i think i, I don't know if i told her i thought mm-hmm. it was her mom or not but she came over here and we showed it to her and she, you know, her mom's been, her mom's passed a long time ago. I don't think she has anything like that. So, uh, that was, that was one of the most special moments to me in this process. Yeah. Wow. That's so powerful. Yeah. I, uh, for me, definitely. I won't, again, I won't reveal it, but when we found our connection to, to Ocean Hill Brownsville, it is Max and I, when we found our, our connection, that was, that was, that was fascinating. Um, interviewing my uncle, my 87-year-old uncle. Uh, and, you know, he'd forgotten a lot of things, but it was, it just, it felt, made me feel sad that I had gone all those years without talking to, the, to my father, to my uncle, to all my aunts and uncles who were part of Ocean Hill Brownsville, never once put a mic up to them and asked them their experience. So that was important that that, that was captured, even if he had forgotten a lot. And then, of course, Adelaide Sanford, you know, not necessarily just the, the interview itself, but just the whole experience of going up there and being in her apartment, which is like a museum itself, mm-hmm. you know, um, and have this 93-year-old woman just speak with such clarity and precision and so, I don't want to say articulate, just how, her total recall <laughs> was just fascinating to me. And, and, and I think that, again, that resonated with other people as well. Recall and conviction. Right. I mean, absolute conviction about what what children need mm-hmm. and do not get and why they don't get it. Well, Mark Winston Griffith, Max Friedman, thank you all so much for just this, this gift. It really, talking to you all makes it really clear how much love and care with which y'all have done these interviews and just molded them into this story to give to people, Central Brooklynites. But really, it, it sounds like anyone who's interested in education, race, and class. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you. Great. So if you have not listened to School Colors yet, uh, you need to go download it right now. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like it half as much as we love it, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Mm -hmm. 
put some stars on it so we know it's real you know what i mean <laughs> so we are gonna shift gears because as y'all know we always end on this segment tell them why you mad so max mark is there anything that you heard saw or experienced lately that pissed you off yeah i've got one that's tied to to this actually uh and every time i think about it it gets me a little bit hot hot <laughs> and that is we spent so many episodes talking about the uft that mm. is the teachers union mm. um, they're such a huge part of this whole saga that we've told and they categorically refused to talk with us and it stands in start such stark contrast to what we just saw in chicago where you had a teachers union that wasn't just self-interested and in te- looking out for themselves, but looking out for the housing of its students and the welfare of its community. And I'm not going to say that the UFT doesn't do that, but that is the charge, and they have failed to show up to defend themselves against it. And so I just, I'm, I'm, I'm mad at their, I will say it, cowardice uh, that they have shown in the face of all that's going on around them, all that's so important and so much... They can contribute to this conversation and they just remain to remain. They choose to remain silent. I think it's it's uh, it's embarrassing, actually. Cowardice is a good word. Mm. I feel like callow is also another one. Mm. Same vein. But (laughs) (laughs) great. Thank you, Mark. Max, you want to tell him why you mad? Yeah, I'm going to pick on somebody for a second. It's not really him. It's the whole system. But you know what? He he can he can take it. Uh, Do you know who Adam Newman is? Mm-mm, but I feel like I'm not going to like him. <laughs> yeah, so um, Adam Newman is the founder of WeWork. Ooh, burn. Take it down. <laughs> right. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not an expert in this, but, um, you know, he built this huge company, incredible amounts of, of investment. And after a while, recently, it was discovered that they, because I, I guess how this works, I don't, I don't know much about like business and venture capital and whatnot, but I guess you don't actually have to like prove to anybody that you're making the kind of money that you say you're making. You don't have to show anybody your books. But if you are like able to talk good in a meeting, people will just throw money at you. And I guess he was mm. really good at talking good in meetings and people white? threw money yes. at him. He's white. That's, and that's, if you're white. Yeah, I think yeah. that's part of it. Um, I talk good in meetings, but don't nobody invest. <laughs> I mean, I talk good in meetings and I'm white, but I think I'm in the wrong meetings. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you're in meetings with us. Yeah, yeah. right. So, um, so turns out WeWork wasn't making any money and, and was sort of falling apart internally. So they, he, they're laying off thousands of people. He has to go and he gets a $1.7 billion golden parachute to leave this company that wasn't making any money. Like, please go away. Here's $1.7 billion. Capitalism in, in a nutshell. And when I think about how hard you you two, let's say, for example, have to hustle to get, like, I don't know, $10,000 to right. do something that actually matters, mm. I, 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 I am beyond words with, with rage. Flames, side of my face. <laughs> Dang. Somebody get the fire extinguisher because that shit don't sound healthy. <laughs> also, Shout out to Madeline Kahn. <laughs> thank you. Another reference that most people won't get. Yeah. I mean, if, if you got the reference, hit us up. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, great. So I'm going to share why I'm mad. Um, I'm sorry, y'all. I don't have 
like a really principled mad. Um, okay. And y'all have already heard about what I'm mad about. I'm mad about these possums. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, as uh, y'all know, I live in the People's Republic of Brooklyn. Um, I do not live in uh, a mountain range. I do not live in a forest. A jungle habitat. I, 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 I live, there's concrete everywhere. And I have just discovered that on my block, uh, there is at least one possum. It's big as fuck. There's no, there's no such thing as one possum. But this is what I'm it's saying. A family. I have seen one at a time, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the other thing is, I know for sure that around the corner there is at least one family of raccoons on my block. <laughs> there is uh, most likely a family of possums. I don't quite understand why I have to live with possums. I pay rent. I know the possums don't pay rent. <laughs> I feel very concerned. I come outside, I make noise. Possums be looking at me like, why are you here? As if they Hold own on. the block. Well, look, I mean, let's be fair. Why are there possums on my block? <laughs> this is ridiculous. I live in a city. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> they didn't cross the border. The border, border? crossed them. There is no okay. border. This is not a forest. <laughs> the forest it was cleared. Was, okay. The forest was cleared. They put in concrete and asphalt. Mm-hmm. All I'm saying I've heard is, other people use you that know, kind of I argument. spent a lot of time yelling at Mayor de Blasio about police. And right now, I'm like, what's really good with these possums? What's good with these raccoons? You know why? Because three and one don't give a fuck. And... <laughs> I do not feel safe living with ferocious rodents on my block. Can I? Can so I, that's why I'm mad. <laughs> can I recommend a YouTube channel to you? No, I don't. Want, I already see them in real life, Max. Why I gotta go look at possums <laughs> on the TV? There's this lady <laughs> who calls herself Pearl, but I I believe I have I haven't gone all the way down this hole, but I believe Pearl is actually the name oh, of a deceased right. possum that she used to care for that now she's adopted the spirit of. Nope. Who raises? Is raises this a white woman? What's happening? <laughs> I'm not here for it. Okay, all right. Talks to dances with no, no, kisses no, possums. Yeah, no. Puts on makeup the with. For my <laughs> anger, to why I'm mad is not more possums. Okay, it's I don't even know if possums is plural. The point is, somebody <laughs> needs to come get rid of these joints on my block. That's it. That's Thank it. you. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> I'm mad. <laughs> All right, y'all. <laughs> On that note, we're going to close out this episode. Thank y'all so much for listening. Third Rail is engineered and edited by Siad Gypsy Reed. Our theme music, City Survival, is written and performed by MCK Swift. Featuring Trezure Empire. You can find this and future podcast episodes on podbean.com and on Apple Podcasts. Just look up Third Rail to find us, subscribe, and please leave that Apple comment. And just again, we're Brooklyn Deep on Facebook and at BKLYN Deep, D E E P, on Twitter. All right, y'all. I'm Antonine Pierre. Peace out. Oh,